British Shipping Radar, our season one finale. Uh, we've run through all of the states and ahead of the census results and ahead of the own redistricting proposals and our own update to the redistricting radar project on electricdaily.com. Um, this will be our last show of redistricting radar for a while. Uh, we've got four really good states to cover, though, that they're all interesting in their own way, smaller states, but ones that are influential and are important in a lot of ways in terms of who can control the house and, and where, where this, we see this chamber going forward. And I'll, uh, you know, here are some, uh, for, if you can't read the title, we've got uh, Utah, we've got Virginia, we've got, uh, Wyoming, or not Wyoming, uh, they're never going to have a second district, we've got Wisconsin, Wisconsin. and we got Washington State. Uh, these are really good states to follow, and they're actually pretty important. So I guess we'll go ahead and throw it right into uh, Utah, which is one of the most interesting states in the country. Uh, it is a very strange state in a lot of ways and also a pretty normal state in a lot of others. And in many ways, its politics are the most traditionally normal of any state in the country. Uh, Utah is a very moderate conservative state dominated by Republicans who are conservatives, but who are also fairly moderate and who are um, uh, and who, yeah, and who are, um, you know, definitely more on the Mitt Romney side of things. Uh, you know, they're conservative, they're, but they're willing to make deals and they're willing to work with the Democratic minority. The exception to this is in redistricting, which is uh, interesting. So basically, Utah has traditionally had a legislative model where the legislature passes maps and the governor can veto them or not. Uh, Utah has Republican governors uh, almost exclusively and a very Republican legislature with virtually no Democrats. Uh, thanks to the, the strong Republican Mormon support in Utah. Most of the Democrats in the state are, in fact, Protestants who live around Salt Lake City. Protestants or nuns, as they're like to be called uh, more recently. Um, so, you know, Republicans have control of the process in theory, but there is a new wrinkle. It's an independent redistricting commission, which will be able to propose advisory maps. So these will be maps that are not binding, but which can be used for public pressure into drawing a different map. Um, now, a couple of things to know about Utah. It's one of the most Republican states in the country by far. Uh, this is a state that vo every single county voted for Mitt Romney, for example, in 2000, uh, 2012. 2004 was George Bush's best state. He won it by, by a resounding margin of victory of like 46 points. Uh, Obama and Biden are the only two Democratic candidates in recent memory who have been able to crack even 30% of the vote. In fact, Biden's 38% of a Democrat since LBJ. Yeah. Uh, but what it's worth noting is that Biden was the first Democrat to hit 37% of the vote in a very, very long time. This is the best Democratic performance here in a while because Trump is not popular. For those who followed 2016, uh, it was considered a swing state because of the presence of an independent third-party candidate, Evan McMullen, who at the time was considered a conservative and who ran a very conservative campaign against Donald Trump from the right – which really appealed to Mormons and Mormon conservatives, especially around places like Provo, uh, Utah County, a lot of places, uh, Salt Lake County did very, very well. And he managed to get 21% of the vote. Hillary Clinton got about 27% of the vote, which wasn't really much better than Obama got. And Donald Trump won only 45%. 2020 comes around. Trump wins the state by 20 points, but it's still a, a fairly weak margin by historic standards. What does this mean? Well, it means that the congressional districts became more competitive. Traditionally, the fourth district is the is the uh, the new district. It, uh, I believe, it was the third district. Uh, Jim Matheson, or second district, sorry, was the Democratic representative for forever in the second district. If you look at the map right here, uh, he represented this district uh, right here, which contained 
uh, Salt Lake City, St. George, and some rural areas around the rest of the state. Uh, he was very popular and won re-election until uh, 2014 when he was defeated by Mia Love. Mia Love proved to be a habitual underperformer in a seat that Mitt Romney won by uh, 33, 37 points. Uh, she managed to lose the district in 2018 to Democrat Ben McAdams, and then Ben McAdams lost the seat to Burgess Owens, uh, the first African American, rep- or uh, oddly enough, the first African American male representative from the district, but the second in the history. To, I just wanted to note that Matheson actually retired in 2014 because his district was so inhospitable. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, Doug Owens ran against. Yeah, Doug Owens ran against in 2014, and then in 2016, uh, Ben McAdams narrowly beat Mia Love. And then Burgess Owens barely beat McAdams. Well, Trump carried the district by about nine points. So this is a state that's a little bit more Democratic federally down ballot. To answer it's a question real quick, bath district. The fourth district yeah. really has been a knife fight seat. Yeah. Now to answer a question here from Matthew Tarr, was race a factor in Love and Owens underperforming by a ton? Um, I think this draws into stereotypes about Mormons that aren't really accurate today. Uh, you could you could make an argument for that, but I don't think it's the case. I think it's just genuinely that Utah uh, voters are generally more moderate and are more willing to have moderate representatives, especially ones who are, have portions of Salt Lake County, uh, as the current map does. It's also worth noting Ben McAdams is a very conservative, by most standards, House Democrat. Uh, J- uh, Matheson was also a very conservative member of the House as far as Even Democrats more so go. More than, um, than McAdams. Yeah. Uh, also, it's worth noting McAdams was the former mayor of Salt Lake County, which is the one of the two major, one the only major Democratic area in the state. Um, so, I think those are more important factors than race. I, the fact, in fact, that they've elected two African American representatives uh, in a state that is almost exclusively white is uh, quite telling, and I think it's fairly, you know, uh, admirable given a lot of other states have almost ne- have never had an African American representative. They've had two recently. The fact that it's in the competitive seat doesn't really matter so much to me. Now, before we go into my map uh, and the maps that we're talking about here, uh, is I wanted to show here uh, a misconception about the map, which is that Salt Lake County is split three ways. Salt Lake City, though, is not butchered. In fact, it doesn't need to be butchered. Uh, There's a tiny little portion of Salt Lake uh, City, you'll notice here, um, in the 4th District, but it really just seems like for population balancing. Uh, really what the map does is it does butcher these cities, or not butchers, it, it splits West Valley City, a couple other more Democratic cities from Salt Lake County, and then moves them in with more conservative areas in the southern portion of the state. Not Provo, but specific areas around um, you know southern rural counties. So it's more of an urban-rural divide than it is a Salt Lake City is butchered, because really the city hasn't been butchered. The city is intact. In fact, I, you don't need to split the city to make a Republican map. You can make a very, very Republican map, which is would elect Republicans that, that the, you know, the people there would be fairly happy with in terms of the Republicans um, without splitting Salt Lake City. So I don't anticipate that. We will go over, though, the representatives for Utah real quick. Uh, I, do you know much about them, Harrison? Would you rather me go over them? Uh, I mean – some of them I feel like are kind of backbenchers. I mean, Blake Moore is brand new. He's very young. Yeah. He's only 40 years old. He replaced Rob Bishop, who had been there for two decades. We all know about Burgess Owens because that seat's a knife fight district where you see frequent turnover. I mean, it's essentially had three or four representatives in the past couple of years, just the past mm-hmm. decade even. Yeah. And um, the other two seats, I mean, 
John Curtis is pretty pretty. John Curtis is an interesting Republican because in many ways he's more of a moderate Republican. You might be able to say, or at least mm -hmm. very different. I mean, notably, John Curtis's son is actually gay. So John Curtis is one hundred percent open uh, to LGBT marriage and LGBT rights in general, and that's something that sets him apart from some other Republicans out west. Even though Utah again is kind of like an anomaly, and the, he and I always mix these. Um, seats up but he won the special election to replace jason chaffetz who resigned yep. from the seat and is now in the private industry as a media contractor and political consultant yep and he, he did so by a large margin yeah and then the other republican is named chris stewart i think i don't know very much about him yeah the other thing the only other thing i would say is that one is that blake moore lives in salt lake city he doesn't actually live in the first district none of salt lake city is in the first district the other is that Utah is a very Mormon state. It's the only state in the country with a majority Mormon population. And all of its members are all of its congressmen are members of the LDS church. So uh, it's, it's pretty interesting in that regard. Although they're not the only Mormon members of Congress, there are, there are Mormon members from, I believe from Idaho, from Arizona. I mean, Matt Salmon was from Arizona. He was a Mormon. I mean, Idaho yeah. is the second largest state when it comes to Mormon population, but Arizona has a significant Mormon population as well. Uh, mm -hmm. you, know, you find them in Nevada too, pretty much all around. Uh, if you drew a circle around greater Utah, yeah. Utah is yeah. just a hub for Mormonism, but it's not exclusively where the Mormons are. Yeah. And it's worth noting, of course, that Burgess Owens is a former football player. He is a convert to the, to the religion or to the, the domination, whether you prefer, whatever he'd prefer to call it. Uh, he grew up Baptist and switched uh, and then later moved to Utah. And so uh, he is, uh, is not a native to the state of Utah as, as far as I know. Um, although he does live in, in Harriman and uh, is, is well, definitely – he definitely is a resident of the state and of the district he lives in. It's um, interesting so too because uh, Mia Love also – I mean she was born in New York City and she's originally Haitian-American. So I don't mm -hmm. know, again, with her if she was originally part of the Mormon faith or not. Not 100 yeah. percent sure because she uh, grew up in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really um it's really a, a you know an interesting yeah, I mean not right it's it's Utah's the closest is the only state in the country where a religious minority is the majority in the state and by religious minority I mean not Protestant and not Catholic which are the two predominant religions in the United States or the denominations again I, I use the term religion and denomination here interchangeably because there's not a Jewish majority state or a Muslim or Buddhist majority state although there are large numbers of those. Uh, religions in other states so it's it's an interesting outlier in a lot of ways and it does inform the political culture to some degree um it's worth noting for example that utah has fairly uh, uh they've reached a compromise between the mormon uh, lds church whatever you prefer to call it whatever they prefer to call it and lgbt activists over a housing discrimination law uh so very very interesting again i would i would suggest research you know on your own time researching the background of Utah, because it is a very interesting state, and it's very much an outlier in the Republican Party and nationally in a lot of ways, I would say. But there's two possibilities here that really could happen. I have two maps. I'll start with the Republican gerrymander. Um, basically, the, the current map of Utah is extremely inefficient in terms of what it does and the areas it takes in. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So what I did was I decided to draw a map which would make more sense, and the seats would all be roughly in line with how the state of Utah votes as a whole. So all of the districts voted for uh, for Donald Trump for president by about an 18 to 21 point margin, so close to the statewide total. I would not expect any more knife fight rates race or races during this map, 
although trends in, in Salt Lake County could indeed cause something like that. So start with the 4th District, which was drawn uh, for the 4th District representative, which would be Burgess Owens. Uh, he lives in, or actually, no, sorry, it, these these totals move around. So the district names are different. But so the 4th would actually, he would, uh, Burgess Owens would be in this new 1st District right here. Uh, I, I didn't have the districts numbered correctly, but his district, oh, no, sorry, not even the 1st. Ah, he'll be in the second. So the second has uh, all of Salt Lake City, and uh, it has all of the city right here, which is uh, South Salt Lake, and a couple other areas to the north. And then it draws in almost all the rural areas in the state. And so this votes for Donald Trump by a 19-point margin, and votes for him by also 19 points in 2016. So very, very Republican district. Uh, Burgess Owens would be quite safe here, I would think. Uh, it would be hard to see a 19-point Trump district flipping. Certainly much harder than seeing a 10-point, a 9-point Trump district fl uh, flipping. The new 1st District would have uh, would be, I believe Chris Stewart is from Farmington, which would be in uh, would be in the 3rd District, I believe. Uh, Farmington actually would be – sorry, I'm trying to look through these. I, I made this map a while back, so I'm trying to find where the residents are. Uh, Farmington – so I'll just go through this in order. So from here. So District 1 – it's very similar to the current one, but you notice the difference here is it's actually uh, Trump plus 23 points. So it's actually very Republican. The reason it is, is it does take in these areas of West Valley City, and the cities are all kept intact. There's no city splits in my map. So even though it is kind of gross looking, it, it does keep the cities intact. Uh, the reason it takes in places like Lehigh, Pleasant Grove, Alpine, which are in Provo, uh, which are in Utah County. Utah County is the most Republican urban county in the country. It is extraordinarily Republican. This is a county that is has places like Provo. It's very heavily populated, five hundred sixteen thousand people. So pretty urban uh, in terms of it. You know, it has that corridor that kind of stretches up into Colorado and Wyoming. And it voted in twenty twelve for Mitt Romney by an astonishing eighty eight to ten margin. By far the most Republican urban county in the country. Even in two thousand eight, it voted seventy seven to nineteen. These are margins you see in Democratic urban counties. Uh, so to see it in a Republican one is astounding. Since then, it's gone back to earth a little bit. In 2016, it voted 80 to 14 for uh, Trump over Clinton, and then Evan McMullen got 36% of the vote. And then 2020, he won at 67 to 26, with another 7% going to third parties. So very, very Republican county. The whole point, broadly speaking here, is it draws in those areas that are very, very Republican. I like just Lehigh. a quick point about... Utah County, just to show exactly how Republican it really is. So I'm just going to share really quickly. But in 1996, there was a Democratic congressman named Bill Orton, and he was pretty much Mr. He was from Provo, which is in Utah County, but he had great appeal outside in the uh, most of these rural counties that had smaller populations. And even in 1996, I mean, he was still doing well out here in a lot of these rural counties. Carbon County is ancestrally Democratic, for example. But ultimately, he just got destroyed in Utah County, and it's just gotten more Republican. So it's an urban urban county for sure, but it's certainly, certainly, certainly not the typical suburban county that you'd find in the modern Yeah, Yep, for sure. Um, and it's it's a very again Utah is a very fascinating state. It's one of my favorite states to to look about because it's such a unique state, it has a unique political culture and a unique personal culture as well. So the second district obviously mentioned Burgess Owens. This draws in all of the rural areas in the state. 
plus Salt Lake City. So it's uh, the rural areas of Utah are extraordinarily Republican, aside with the exception of three counties, which are, um, let me turn the labels on here, uh, Grand County, which has a substantial Native American population, San Juan, which also has a substantial, or actually Grand is a, uh, has a lot of like ski areas. It's a uh, fairly white county, but it's very similar to a lot of other ski counties where it's very, very democratic or mostly democratic at this point. San Juan has a Native American majority and is marginally Republican. And then there's also Summit County, which has portions of around Salt Lake area as well as some ski areas. And it's the most democratic county in the state. In fact, Uh, Trump only lost Salt Lake County by 11 points. He lost Summit by 19. That gives you an idea of what we're talking about here in terms of margins. The third district is the one that uh, that would have uh, Chris Stewart in this new third district. He's from Farmington, which is in um, another county, which is interesting, Davis County, very Republican county, not as much as Provo, but historically quite Republican. Uh, in fact, uh, Farmington, Ogden, these areas are becoming a little bit more competitive in terms of they're not 70 point landslides at this point. This seat would have gone to President Trump by about 18 points. Uh, again, it draws in some of these other areas surrounding here. So not Salt Lake City, but Democratic cities at this point, like Murray, like Holiday. Uh, and it draws them in without splitting anything. So uh, this would be, a, I think this would be the most competitive seat in the state in terms of votes. And then this would be the new fourth. Uh, this has, would be probably where Blake Moore would would, would be. Because he, I mean, they're not going to split Salt Lake City, I don't think, to put his residence in. This one would have voted for Trump by about 19 points because it has all of Summit. It has some Republican portions or more competitive portions of Salt Lake County, as well as places like Logan and a few other rural counties, along with Provo. Having Provo would make it substantially more Republican, I think, than a lot of other areas in the state. So that's the Republican gerrymander. Uh, the results would be a map where you know Republicans would have won all of them by over 20 points, with the exception of the third district, which would be the most competitive and would be not where you expect a traditional Democratic candidate to compete in. Now, the alternative to this would be a fair map, which would be uh, different in a lot of ways. Um, and so I drew this. It's very simple to draw Utah. So the fourth district here I drew to be as rural as possible. Um, it basically draws in all of some very, very Republican rural areas in the state of Utah. Um, so it has, uh, for example, um, St. George. It has all of these areas along with uh, Summit County, San Juan, and uh, Grand County. So it has all of the rural areas in the state. This would have voted for, uh, in 2016, voted for Senator Republicans by over 60 points. Now it would have voted for Trump by 71 to 24 margins. They're not competitive. The third is a Provo along with some other cities in Salt Lake County. Uh, basically, so it's just part of Utah County and then these areas of Salt Lake County. This is a Trump plus 27 district. So again, not competitive. Uh, Evan McMullen does still outrun Hillary Clinton in this district. He did very, very well in Utah County. In fact, I think he actually won a precinct or two in Utah County. The second is the Democratic seat, which is based around Salt Lake City. has all of the Democratic areas, West Valley City, uh, and it would elect a Democrat, and probably a pretty liberal Democrat at that. Not a Bimbic Adams, but a, a fairly solidly progressive Democrat. This would have voted for uh, Hillary Clinton by 21 points, and it would have voted for Joe Biden by a 61 to 35 margin. Worth noting, though, it wouldn't, have, wouldn't have, have been historically as Democratic. Mike Lee only loses this district by a point in 2016. Mitt Romney only loses it by nine. And in the gubernatorial race this time, um, the Republican governor in Utah only loses it by 10. So 
historically a seat that would have been very possible for Republicans to win, but not anymore. And then finally, the first is another safe Republican seat. It draws in the northern areas of this valley region, which you can notice kind of stretches up into color into Idaho and then down into um, into parts of Arizona. But it's really just uh, Idaho and Utah in particular that have this pretty solid, um, you know, valley of support and it, it votes for Republicans by again, like a 29 point margin. So that's Utah. Those are the two possibilities of really what it could go, uh, go with, uh, you know, the, whatever this new fourth district is would set up a primary between, um, Chris Smith and Burgess Owens. And it would be a very interesting primary. Uh, we, I, I'm not sure who would actually win that primary. So that's, uh, that's something to keep an eye on in terms of, of where things are going is, is that seat. And this does ultimately matter because if, if uh, Utah does get a Democratic seat, that's a seat Dem- Republicans lose, which helps Democrats in their race to hold the House of Representatives, not lose it. Uh, but with that out of the way, that is the state of Utah. Uh, very interesting state. If you have any questions, feel free to ask them. We'll answer them later on. But we'll go ahead and move on to a more interesting state in some ways, which is Virginia. Uh, one of the most rapidly Democratic uh, trending counties in the co- states in the country uh, It has a competitive gubernatorial race this cycle. It has still have some Republican strength down ballot, and we'll have competitive districts. And thanks to a new independent commission, it's going to be an interesting state to follow. So I'll go ahead and throw it to Harrison to explain uh, kind of the recent history of Virginia, some of its representatives and where we're going. Before I go ahead and show our fair map, which is what I had devised and had gotten a lot of positive attention from people that I know from Virginia. Sure. Let me just pull up the uh, congressional districts real quick. All right. So the first thing I want to mention about Virginia is it's one of four states in the last half decade where we've seen a court-mandated redraw of the congressional districts since they were Mm -hmm. first drawn in 2012, the other three being North Carolina and um, Florida, both of which had their maps redrawn ahead of the 2016 cycle, so did Virginia, and uh, Pennsylvania, which had its maps redrawn ahead of the 2018 cycle. And uh, North Carolina, I think, had the maps redrawn again, right before 2020. So that's yeah, what, we had them we, three we, we times in the 2020 election. Yeah, so North Carolina is crazy. Sorry, Eric. <laughs> it's uh, it's litigation hell. Yeah, but to look at um, the current representatives, we'll go through them. Uh, so Rob Whitman represents this for the first congressional district. Uh, its tip essentially stretches up. If you want to look here, the tip essentially stretches up into the parts of Nova. Uh, but it's it mostly is a coastal. But it's mostly just a coastal district. Does take in Fredericksburg, um, but again, it's held by Rob Whitman, a Republican. This seat has actually become a little bit more marginal as of late, although it's still a Republican seat. If you want to look at um, the most recent congressional election here, voted uh, for Trump by four points and only voted for Corey Stewart by one. Yeah, it's certainly a little bit more competitive than it has been in the past. You can see Democrats in 2018 had their best performance. Uh, they got almost 45% of the vote. Even in 2020, they managed to hold it above 40%, which was uh, pretty much just pretty uncommon in that district at the time. Keep in mind that these are old boundaries when you go further back. Uh, these boundaries have only been in place since 2016. Uh, this second one here is held by Elaine Luria, a Democrat. She represents the Norfolk area over here. Uh, and it's notable to look at this coastal Virginia seat because it was formerly held by a Republican named Scott Taylor in 2018. And Scott Taylor 
started in 2016, he beat uh, Randy Forbes, who was the incumbent Republican in a primary, and he was the challenger. And Forbes lost that primary. Uh, it was the second Republican incumbent primary loss in two cycles, the first being Dave Bratt beating Eric Cantor in the 2014 cycle. But under these new lines, he won that primary, won his term in 2016, narrowly lost the seat to Luria in 2018. Um, if you want to look down here, um, where is it? Yeah, just so I can show you a bit of the elections. And Scott Taylor tried to make a comeback bid in 2020. It just did not work. Uh, the Virginia Beach area has really seen a general trend toward the Democrats, though, which is quite mm -hmm. interesting. And it really started off, even though Ralph Norton is from this area, it started off, we started hearing it on election night 2017 with just how well um, Ralph Norton was doing there in comparison to Terry McAuliffe in the previous gubernatorial election against Ken Cuccinelli. Uh, and that's something to keep in mind. Uh, the third district is held by Bobby Scott from Newport News. And the third district uh, is one of, I guess you could say, the VRA seats. It's plurality black. Mm -hmm. And um, the third and fourth districts are both represented by um, black incumbents. The other being Donald yeah. McKitchen in the fourth district from Richmond. Uh, and this seat is not a VRA seat. It is majority white. Uh, but this took in a lot of Randy Forbes's former territory and made it a much more democratic seat. So the mm -hmm. Democrats picked that seat up in 2016. And I do have a comment here about the, those are the two seats that were redrawn, the third and the fourth. If I can go ahead yeah. and show my screen here, that will show our, our viewers what was actually changed with the Virginia map. So this is what the previous map looked like. Um, you'll notice here the four, basically the third district used to have, um, it used to have Richmond and it used to have Norfolk and some other areas around here. It, used to, it was kind of a really bizarre looking seat, but it was drawn to have a majority black population. Uh, and then the fourth district was this Republican seat taking in parts of Chesterfield County and then parts of, um, I think parts of uh, maybe part of Henrico County, but it was a Republican seat held by Randy Forbes. And then ba so basically it looked very different. And then that was redrawn as a racial gerrymander because it packed all of the Democratic voters into this third district right here. Never mind that's how it used to look previously. This is how it looked for you know quite a while was that unusual split along the Virginia Beach mm -hmm. area. So now the map is the uh, unpacking essentially doomed Randy Forbes to losing his primary to Scott Taylor yeah. in the second district and gave Donald McEachin a much, you could say, a better opportunity to win much of that fourth district territory turned into a democratic seat, not as democratic yep. as the third, but still a Clinton and Biden. Yeah. But it's worth noting. I'm um, just, that was the, those are the districts that were changed. The rest of the state, uh, the, the rest of its district stayed intact. As far as I can mm -hmm. tell, they didn't have any other changes beyond just fixing the, the areas directly surrounding uh, the Richmond area. Yep. And if you want to add my screen back, I just also want oh, yeah. to briefly uh, I want to forgot to mention in the second district, it was briefly represented by a Democrat named Glenn Nye. In its previous form, it was a seat that Democrats came close or at least were competitive in uh, in 2004 and 2006. So eventually in 2008, after a close fight in 2006, the DCCC invested a lot in Glenn Nye beating Thelma Drake. And they did win that seat. Ultimately, though, he was defeated for re-election in 2010. Reminds me a lot uh, of Frank Craddeville on yeah. Maryland's eastern coast, who beat Andy Harris. Andy Harris beat a moderate congressman named Wayne Gilchrist, a Republican. We'll be interviewing him on Blast from the Past next month, actually. 
But uh, Gilchrist lost the primary, and Andy Harris lost uh, in 2008 narrowly to Craddleville. But he came back a lot like East Scott Rigel in 2010 and beat Craddleville by pretty much the exact same margin. And um, ironically, it's a bit off topic, but now Andy Harris might be finding himself drawn out. Um, but we'll move on to the 5th District. The 5th District was also held by a Republican or sorry, by a Democrat named Tom Perriello. You may remember him from his 2017 gubernatorial mm -hmm. bid. And he won in 2008 as well, but lost in 2010. Uh, the seat is now held by Bob Good. And there was a lot of strife in this seat. Uh, you had a Republican named Denver Riegelman before who was criticized by party officials uh, for officiating a gay wedding, which is obviously a small crime in the eyes of most people. But they held a state convention and ultimately, in the state convention vote, Riggleman lost the primary, quote unquote, to Bob Good, the far more conservative candidate. And Bob Good proceeded to beat uh, Cameron Webb in 2020 uh, by a pretty decent margin. And I won't say Cameron Webb was a bad candidate. It was just one of many Democratic House candidates that, frankly, were overestimated, including by myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's Bob worth noting with with. Tom per uh, Periello, people know him now as a progressive. Back when he was a representative in the House, he was actually quite conservative. He represented his district more. And then he challenged uh, Ralph Northam in 2017 in the Democratic primary as a pretty dyed-in-the-wool progressive candidate. Yeah. Ben Klein, that's the former former Bob Goodlot seat on the West Virginia border. If you remember, Bob Goodlot was a pretty influential House Republican. Mm -hmm. Abigail Spanberger is the seventh district. So a little bit of history on this seat. Traditionally, very, very reliably Republican. It was held by Eric Cantor. And Eric Cantor was actually House Majority Leader. Mm -hmm. uh, but Cantor lost his primary in 2014 to Dave Bratt by about 10 points. And Dave Bratt was running as an outsider. He was an economics professor, business, one of the two at Liberty University. So he's definitely the mm -hmm. outsider candidate. Eric Cantor's political ambitions were just so crushed by that that he resigned the seat in the House. So Dave Brad ended up winning that year in 2014, filling the vacant seat. And Dave Brad was pretty much considered a safe bet until 2018. Abigail Spanberger came along a lot like 2006. In 2006, a lot of the um, you know more prominent Democratic candidates, office holders, people that the DCCC would try and convince to run for office, they were discouraged from running because they saw these seats as having voted Republican pretty, pretty reliably in the previous election cycles. So same thing happened with Rahm Emanuel when he was running the DCCC in 2006. A lot of good candidates that had experience had seen just the terrible Democratic performances and high incumbent reelection rates of the previous two cycles and opted not to run. So somebody like Spanberger was an outsider candidate. Most of the winning Democratic candidates in 2006 and 2018 who beat Republican incumbents were outsiders who won in a blue wave and defeated incumbents who had fallen asleep at the wheel. And Dave Pratt was one of those individuals to a lesser extent. And Spanberger was an outsider. She had worked for the CIA, came in and managed to win. And it wasn't razor thin close. It was still a close race, but she won by about two points. Her race um, was actually closer this time around in 2020. She almost lost to a Republican named Nick Freitas. And honestly, to some extent, this race was closer than we expected. Mm -hmm. So uh, Abigail yeah. Spanberger after that became quite prominent in the media because uh, reportedly on a call with other Democrats, she was criticizing the Democratic campaign strategy and was worried that the progressive faction of the party's House caucus would tarnish 
uh, moderate members like her in competitive seats as socialists and essentially ruin their electoral strategies and trick yeah. voters into backing Republicans. So she was very vocal about making sure they didn't essentially adopting too progressive of an agenda and a campaign message would hurt moderate Democrats in seats that are marginally Democratic or Republican. And it's worth noting that she um, that you know she was in particular very offended by the defund the police attacks. Those apparently were very effective against her. This is a seat that went from Trump plus six to Biden plus one, so it's still very competitive. It's not a she still outran Biden as far as I can tell by a very small margin. But she was very very upset about the defund the police stuff because it it made her race a lot more challenging than she thought it would be. Yeah, and Nick Freitas was not a good candidate. I'm just going to come out and say that. He literally failed to properly file his petitions originally. Definitely not a top recruit, which is why it scared her, because typically you only see bad candidates win in wave years when you're just swept in by your party's momentum. So to have a mediocre candidate come close to beating you as a good incumbent, I mean, she was a good incumbent uh, in terms of establishing herself as a fundraiser and a campaigner. That's kind of um, threatening. Uh, the eighth is represented by Don Beyer. He ran for governor against Jim Gilmore in 1997, 98, one of those years, 97. Uh, and Gilmore famously is just remembered as an awful governor by both sides, particularly for mishandling the state's budget. And just for trivia, his handling of the state government is pretty much why he got annihilated by Mark Warner in his run for the open Senate seat in 2008. And Warner was the governor at the time. Um mm -hmm. The ninth is represented by Morgan Griffith. He's been in the seat since 2010. He actually won in an upset in 2010. Uh, the incumbent was a Democrat named Rick Boucher, who pretty much held the ninth district, which had historically been a knife fight district, a lot like Utah's fourth, really, historically. Now it's safe Republican, but Boucher was expected to hold on to the seat narrowly. Griffith actually defied the polls and won, and he's been reelected safely since then. Uh, the 10th is represented by Jennifer Wexton. 20 years ago, uh, Nova, essentially, Loudoun and Fairfax County, solidly Republican. A lot like the collar counties in Illinois or the collar in Philadelphia, like any mm -hmm. traditional, even the collar around Atlanta, the Cobb, Gwinnett type setup, just now just brutal for Democrats. Barbara Comstock lost re-election to her in 2018. She actually had the closest race of her career, Comstock, in 2016 up to that point. And ultimately now it's just very, very difficult for Republicans yeah. to win in Nova. I mean, you can shave yeah. off Democratic margins, but winning is pretty much out of the question. Jerry for those, yeah. is in the 11th for district, just to wrap up. He actually did have a close race against it was either Keith, Trevor, Simeon, some guy named Simeon, a Republican in 2010. That was his only close race. It was very tight. But other than that, this is a safe Democratic seat. The most Democratic, second most Democratic in the state. Yeah. For, the, for those who are wondering about like how Democratic Fairfax County has gotten, um, in particular, it's the most striking one. This is a county that voted for uh, Bob McDonnell in the 2009 gubernatorial election by about two points, so voted for a Republican. By the 2017 race, it had gone to a 68-31 to 31 Democratic county, and that's even pretty low compared to how it actually votes federally. And then you look at places like Loudoun County and Prince William County, which have become almost equally as Democratic. It's really been a, a raw area for, for Republicans, to put it lightly. And there have been many, many heartbreaks for Republicans in Virginia because the rest of the state tends to report first, and then Northern Virginia comes in and produces a Democratic victory. Yeah, but if you want to, Eric, feel free to go ahead and show your map in Virginia. Yeah, so I am. I'm, we're not using the redistricting radar map. We're actually using a map I developed, which, is, which was uh, – 
universally beloved, and I don't say that lightly, by the Virginia group of people we have here at Elections Daily, seem to really, really love this map in particular. Um, it is, on first glance, it's a it's a very fair map, and I think it would be something the commission might be prone to produce, something like there's certain no-gos that I think the commission won't go for. For example, I've heard that a lot of people in Char- Charlottesville and Charleston County, or uh, uh, Charlottesville, or sorry, Charlottesville and the southern Richmond suburbs don't want to be in the same district together. That's a common draw for um, for people who are casual map makers because they're both Democratic areas now. But they don't really like being in the same district together. They're different regions of the state. So my map does something very different in how it draws them. So I'm going to go ahead and show my map. Um, going to go district by district. So I'm going to highlight what I've done here. And it does make some changes to the current status quo. This is not drawn with incumbency as a factor. So this is a new first district. It it takes in uh, everywhere from Fredericksburg area all the way along the coast. The northern Richmond suburbs past Henrico County has Jamestown and it has the eastern shore. Uh, this is something I've heard frequently from Virginia people is the eastern shore is not really a great fit for the second district. It's a very rural area. Well, it is connected by bridge to the Virginia Beach area. This seems to be more so for transit to and from uh, the D.C., Baltimore area, and other areas around in Maryland than it is for travel to the Eastern Shore, which is still, as of right now, uh, I mean, you can see it right here when I highlight them, uh, 44,000 people. It doesn't have a lot of people, and it kind of just fits better into this first district. This new second district is a new draw. It's a new design. It takes in Virginia Beach. It takes in Chesapeake. And it also takes in the entire city of Norfolk. Now, the reason this is drawn like this is, one, I think it's a reasonable way to do things. The second is doing it the other way where you split off some of these areas uh, really advantages Republicans more than they probably warrant. Uh, this version of – actually, sorry, I'll go back and explain what, how these places vote, but I'm going to just highlight how they voted here first. So the first district – is a Trump plus 17 district in 2016 voted for Tim Ke- or for uh, Corey Stewart by about seven points and for Ed Gillespie by about 14. So this would be a, a solid Republican seat more so than the current one. The second would have voted for uh, Joe Biden by about five points would have voted for uh, Ralph Northern by about 12 points and Tim Kaine by about 17 points. This is still a feasibly competitive district down ballot. I mean, probably wouldn't have been more than, than Biden plus eight or so. I don't think, but it would be a Democratic-leaning seat. This new third as well keeps the VRA status intact. you notice it draws in these African-American areas of Chesapeake. Uh, this is another reason I like this map. You'll notice it draws in uh, – it doesn't draw by race, but it draws in these independent cities pretty well. And it connects by bridge as well through Newport News and through uh, this county right here. And it votes for Democrats by about 20 points. It's a majority white seat, but a, de- but a black Democrat would win here. This new 4th district as well is not majority black, neither is the current one, but it is a majority non-white seat, and it again would vote for Democrats by a very large margin of about 27 points. This new 5th district is a Demo- is a Republican-leaning seat. Abigail Spamberger would be in trouble here. Uh, it draws in these Piedmont regions of, North- of Virginia, which actually make a lot more sense as a grouping than uh, drawing along to Charlottesville. So this seat would have gone to... Uh, to Corey Stewart by five points, still feasibly competitive. You'll notice here the Democratic parts of Chesterfield County do get their, do get to go into the fourth district. So uh, reasonably happy in that regard. Also, the notorious Colonial Heights is included in the fourth district. A commission might do this the other way, but I just don't like Colonial Heights, and so I put it into the fourth district. 
Uh, for those who aren't familiar, Colonial Heights is often pejoratively called Colonial Whites. It was literally created by splitting a, a, a city in two so that the white portion would have its own city. It has a reputation as a not ideal place. It's very Republican. Some of Amanda Chase. I don't like it. It's in the fourth district for that reason. That's an objectively spiteful move. You could, it doesn't really matter that much in terms of population. Now, I really like this new sixth district. So the sixth goes from Charlottesville, contains Lynchburg, it contains Roanoke, and it contains Staunton as well. I love the sixth district and people who, who, uh, who know Virginia like this as well. It's basically these urban communities in the Shenandoah Valley. And you'll notice here, this actually does vote for uh, Tim Kaine in the Senate race. It vote it, it's relatively close. So it's a competitive district. Someone like a Bob bad or Bob good. We call him jokingly Bob bad. Uh, Bob good would probably be Bob bad. I have to shout year. out my good friend Armin for he created that. <laughs> yes. So Bob good would probably be Bob bad here because he would not be popular in the more progressive communities around Roanoke, Charlottesville, and probably not in Lynchburg either, to be honest. So this is a Republican leaning seat, uh, but it could be competitive in the right circumstances. This new seventh is an interesting one. Republicans would actually really like this seat because it gives them some representation in Northern Virginia. Uh, this has parts of Prince William County. It has part of Loudoun County. It also has places like uh, Harrisonburg and Winchester. And this would be a Republican seat. It would have voted for Corey Stewart by 11 points for Donald Trump by 19. Uh, but Republicans would be very happy with this in Northern Virginia because they'd finally be able to move, retain their job as a consultant in DC while also living in possibly one of two Republican areas of Northern Virginia. You'll notice here, this has the rural portion of, of Loudoun County, as well as these areas around Manassas and Southern, um, Southern uh, Prince William County. The eighth district here is uh, another district. It's based in Northern Virginia. It's doesn't really, not really worth mentioning. It has our Alexandria Groveton. These, these don't split city lines as well. These DC seats, which is very, I'm very happy about the ninth district is down in the, mountains uh it would be very republican would have voted for Corey stewart by 30 points voted for ed gillespie by 38 trump by 40 42 points overwhelmingly republican this uh for this 10th district as part of loudon and part of fairfax county notice again no city splits and it's very democratic a democrat plus 30 district and then finally, the 11th is another Democrat plus 30 district. It is also the most non-white of these districts. It's only 54% white, very racially diverse down ballot. You'll notice large Hispanic, black, and Asian populations. Um, so how this map votes overall, and I'll turn off the only current here, uh, this map would on balance vote for Democrats 6 to 5. The median seat would be uh, the third, the second congressional district here. Democrats would have won these three districts in Northern Virginia and these three districts in Richmond and Hampton Roads. And there'd be also five other districts that Republicans would be favored in. And Democrats would have won in 2018, would have won seven districts, which is quite reasonable given their popular vote margin. Um, I don't know how this votes in the 2020 election. We haven't calculated it, but I don't anticipate any of these districts flipping. Uh, the third is the only one. It maybe goes to Biden plus eight or plus 10. The rest of these would still be about the same, though, I would think, aside from maybe this new sixth district. But that's my Virginia map. I'm really, really happy with this. I'm going to lobby hard for it to be in our update of redistricting radar when we get the new census data, but I am very, very happy with how this goes, and the Virginia people I know are also as well. I, I don't tout this without people like Joanna and other people that we have on our Virginia team who you saw some of them in the Virginia panel we had, the discussion of the primary. All of them were very, very pleased with this map, so I think this is something fairly reasonable that the commission could do. We don't know if they're going to draw an incumbent map 
or truly be independent or maybe have a Republican skew. We really don't know. But most assuredly, though, it will not be a, an extreme gerrymander on either side, I don't think. It's going to be a reasonably fair map, and an amalgamation of a fair map, at least. So now we'll move on to our next state, which is the state of Washington. Uh, this is an interesting state because it's got a lot of nominally competitive districts. It's a, uh, It was drawn – it has a commission structure. It's generally anticipated that some of the seats will be less competitive now than they were when they started – but overall, this is seen as a Democratic-leaning state with a lot of red areas and a few areas that are actually trending on the whole to Republicans, um, however limited that trend may be. So uh, we'll go ahead and get started on a Washington, which I'll cover since, here, since Harrison just covered uh, Virginia. We'll cover uh, – I'll cover Washington. So Washington state has 10 congressional districts. Uh, it has a six, It has a 7 to 3 Democratic majority. Republicans hold the third, fourth, and fifth districts, while Democrats hold everything else. So everything that touches Seattle or the Seattle area is Democratic, and everything that does not touch the Seattle area is Republican. Um, the exception here, of course, is the 10th, which has portions of Tacoma, I believe. Um, and so we'll go through these these members. Um, you'll notice a lot of these are kind of backbenchers, and it's just there's a lot of generic Democrats here. Susan Delbean from Medina, Rick Larson in the second district. Uh, the Republicans are more interesting, so I'll go through the Democrats first. Derek Kilmer in the 6th. Kilmer is actually an interesting fellow. His district is trending um, Republican, you'll notice, somewhat. It voted for Obama by 15 points, and then it voted for Clinton by 12, and then for Biden by 18. So it, it trended back a little bit. It snapped, snapped back, but a lot of the areas around this area are trending more Republican, and there's also a large white working class base. So Kilmer has a reputation as kind of a technocrat. A uh, very notable, very influential figure in the Hill. Uh, Prima Japal is a progressive out of Seattle. You probably heard of her. She's very, very part of a progressive caucus. Kim Schreier in the 8th is a traditionally Republican district. This district was represented until very recently by uh, by Republican Dave, Dave Reicher, who is from King County. This district has portions of King County. He retired in 2018 and was replaced by... Uh, Democrat Kim Schreier. Now, this seat has voted Democrat for president in 2008, 12, 16, and 20. So it's not a newly trending Democratic seat, but rather it's just one that the time has kind of picked up on. It went from B Obama plus two to Biden to Clinton plus three to Biden plus seven. So still nominally competitive, but it's worth noting that the district actually had competitive races in 2018. Uh, notoriously unlucky Republican. Uh, Dino Rossi, very credible candidate who's done very well, lost the seat by about five points, which is about – I can tell you – I just need to tell, tell our yeah. viewers a little bit about how – just how historically unlucky he really was. Yeah, but we'll do that real quick just after I mention the other race, which is recently for Schreier, which is uh, against uh, Jesse Jensen this time. She actually performed terribly in the blanket primary, and this was kind of a sign that the seat was competitive in November. Uh Krasger and it's wrote an excellent article covering it and talk with his, uh, her Republican opponent, Jesse Jensen, who only lost the seat by three points. That's actually a very respectable performance for a Republican in the eighth mm -hmm. district. But just real quick before I'll let Eric get back to it. Just not only was Dana Rossi unlucky in that 2018 race, as you're about to see, he was also terribly unlucky in the 2004 gubernatorial election, which he lost literally by a few hundred votes. And the litigation on this race was drawn out pretty much just as long as 
Al Franken's narrow, controversial 100-so vote victory over Norm Coleman in 2008. Mm -hmm. He was very unlucky. He was just – he was under 200 votes away from becoming the governor of Washington, essentially, which would have drastically changed his career. And it's even more historically because he's he's run four competitive races and he's lost all of them. He ran in 2008. He, in a horrible year for Washington Republicans, he was one good spot. He narrowly, fairly ran close against uh, against the governor he had narrowly lost to in 2004. Then in 2010, he ran for Senate. Again, he did very respectably in Washington. He did very, very well. I think Miles and, actually noted the other day that he's really the only reason that race was even competitive in 2010, even in a bad environment. He only lost by four and a half, four and a half points in Washington in a Senate race against Patty Murray. And then he loses the 2018 House race. People make fun of him as a perennial candidate and a joke candidate. Perennial candidate, yes. Joke candidate, no. It's just Washington is a really tough state for Republican to He's win. He's just in. an unlucky, serious candidate, if you want to. Yeah, yeah. Again, I don't call him a joke, and I think you shouldn't call him either. He has a pretty impressive electoral resume in Washington, which is not a state that is favorable to Republicans. He's gotten closer to winning statewide and in competitive districts than pretty much any other Republican in the state of Washington has. Uh, so the fact that he ran pretty close in 2018, isn't that surprising? I mean, five point margin in Washington eight is not terrible. He's actually a pretty credible qualified candidate. He just has a bum luck of running in a really, really problematic state for, uh, for, you know, for, for Republicans, but back to the rest of the Democrats here in the state, um, Adam Smith is another Democrat. He's from the ninth district, which has parts of Bellevue in it. Uh, it's a majority non-white seat, actually, at this point, very marginally so. Uh, he's more moderate than the seat would suggest. He's still a liberal, mostly, but he's more of a – he's not as progressive as you would expect from a seat that went, you know, is that high of a PBI. And then finally, the 10th is newly represented, newly elected representative Marilyn Strickland. Uh, you'll notice that this district was – she – even though it's nominally somewhat competitive, Biden plus 16, Clinton plus 12, uh, she actually, because of the blanket primary system – she actually made the top two with another Democrat and she won against a more progressive Democrat by and about 14. She was actually one of the first three together with um, young Kim and Michelle Park Steele, the first three Korean American women elected to Congress. So that's another mm -hmm. little historic note for her. Yeah. She won by 14. You'll notice here they include write-ins because although some Republicans did vote in the race, a lot of them did just keep their ballots blank uh, or they wrote in someone else. Uh, this tends to happen in jungle primary states. That's why I hate jungle primaries. But the three Republicans here are all really, really fascinating. Washington Republicans punch above their weight. Uh, Jamie Herrera Butler, uh, Butler is one of the Hispanic women in Congress. At the time, she was one of the few women in Congress on the Republican side. This is a nominally competitive district around um, the Portland area, the northern Portland suburbs. You notice Trump only won the seat by four points. So not a thoroughly a Democratic seat or Republican seat, I should say. But Bueller is very popular. She won the seat by five points in, in a very bad year. And then won it by 13 points against the same Democrat this time. Um, and then in the fourth district, Dan Newhouse is from this very Republican seat in the center of the state. Uh, this is a Republican seat where you often see Republican versus Republican in a lot of ways. And then Kathy McVorse Rogers is the former chair of a former very high ranking Republican. She's one of the most influential Republicans in Congress and very much punches above her weight. Democrats wanted to take her out in 2018 and they got within 10 in her Spokane based seat, which is a Biden plus or Trump plus nine seat. Um, 
former former seat of Representative Tom Foley, one of the few Democrats to lose, one of the few House speakers to lose uh, lose their seat. Since 1862, when he lost, he lost a seat in the '94 red wave, and it's been Republican ever since. That was a massive upset. And to be fair, George Nethercutt, who beat him, did run for Senate in 2004, but did not come close. Which again shows that Dina Rossi was a good candidate. Yeah. But uh, these three are very important. And so McMorris Rogers, because she is a very, very influential Republican on the Hill. And then these two, because they voted to impeach President Trump. Uh, we actually have these guys fairly low on the primary list, in part because it's a top two system. Uh, it's very likely that it's hard to get rid of an incumbent in a top two system. And honestly, they're both pretty popular. Um, I mean, you could see an R versus R race in the fourth. But all that would do is is the Democrats in that race, assuming Newhouse makes the top two, which is fairly fairly likely, I would think, uh, would probably vote for him over any Trump-based challenger. Same with McMorris Rogers. Um, it's also quite possible that it's a the highest performing well, was, or the highest was, performing D. It was wasn't it was um, Newhouse voted for impeachment, but uh, Butler voted for impeachment too. Yes, they both voted for impeachment, so they're on the list of people that want primary challenges. But on the other hand, they're not the top of the list. I think they're both going to be probably fine. Um, it depends on how the seats are drawn, I think, but I think they'll both be fine. I don't think out of the two, I think Newhouse is the more likely, more probable to lose because he is in a worse seat for that sort of electoral person. But at the same time, I don't think either of them are top tier Democratic targets or anything. No, I mean, someone like, for example, Adam Kinzinger is certainly a much more risk or just Liz Cheney herself. Yeah, they're in much redder seats. Yeah, and and so then now we get to the Davis. Yeah, and so we'll get to the map I drew, which is a fair. It's a fair map of Washington. It's it's based off of our redistricting radar map. It's basically the same map as the redistricting radar map. They don't have twenty twenty data yet for the state of Washington, but they do have twenty sixteen data, which is fairly useful in a lot of ways. Um, in particular for the gubernatorial races, because Washington, even though Republicans haven't won the governor gubernatorial race here in a very long time, it is a state where they the races tend to be competitive. In fact, Republicans almost flipped the office in 2012. Uh, They had a very credible candidate. And so they tend to do much better down ballot in some of these areas. So we'll go district by district. Uh, This does, I don't know if this will be the way it's drawn. I think most people expect the eighth to take in more of King County and this become more democratic. But I think the idea, it becomes so, so democratic that it's out of reach uh, becomes a bit of a challenge. I think as far as seats go. So this new first district takes in these two very rural or these two uh, island and San Juan counties, which are very democratic areas, in particular San Juan, is just absurdly democratic. Um, this seat would have voted in uh, for Trump or for Biden by seven points, would have narrowly voted for uh, Jay, Jay Inslee, and would have uh, narrowly voted for the Democratic senator in 2018. So this is a theoretically competitive seat, but the fact that it has San Juan and Island makes it a lot more democratic and much more likely to hold for Democrats. The second here... Uh, takes in these these cities along the uh, the Seattle northern suburbs. It's much more democratic. Democrats win the seat easily by large margins. Although again, you'll notice the gubernatorial race. Uh, it's within twenty, so much more competitive in that race. The third district is uh, again very similar. Trump plus eight, R plus ten in the governor race, and then R plus three in the four in the Senate race in twenty eighteen. So again, theoretically competitive. It takes in more of Thurston County around Olympia, which is the state capital. Uh, the fourth district is uh, is a little bit different this time. It takes in all of Yakima. It takes in Click uh, Click 
Lickitat County. Uh, it takes in these areas. Very Republican, R plus 23, uh, very, very safe Republican. Fifth District, again, is the Spokane-based seat. Has Spokane, has Whitman. Uh, two college areas in, in particular. Spokane's the biggest seat in western or eastern Washington, uh, biggest city that is. And this is, again, a very safe Republican district for the most part, especially with Morris Rogers. The six is pretty much identical to the current version. It votes for Clinton by 12, uh, votes for Inslee by seven or eight points. Uh, the new seventh is these southern areas around Seattle. Again, the Adam, this is the Adam Smith seat, very, very Democratic, Democrats 40. This new eighth district does become more Democratic, but not overwhelmingly Democratic. It's only Clinton plus uh, plus 6.8 or so. It actually goes Republican in the gubernatorial race and is very competitive in the Senate race. So this is still a competitive district, I think. This ninth district is based out of Seattle. Uh, you'll notice it has all of Seattle in it. And the other thing that's notable about it is Republicans get 9% of the vote here and third parties get 5.5% in 2016. So it's actually quite possible that Republicans may get fewer votes than third parties here on occasion. Because this is, in fact, all of the city of Seattle. Uh, you'll notice all of it is in the district. And then finally, the 10th is based around Tacoma. And it's basically almost entirely in Pierce County. Goes to Democrats by about 13 points. So that's the map. Uh, I don't know if they do something like this. It's just a hypothetical fair map. It's quite possible they draw an incumbent protection gerrymander. You could easily, for example, uh, make give Kilmer, for example, uh, Aberdeen. Or he has Aberdeen, which is famous for a lot of reasons. But give him Pacific County and then swap that out for ClickCat or Yakima to help uh, Herrera Butler. But in reality, I think uh, I, I don't think it's going to be a gerrymander or anything. I think a six to three or a seven to a six to four or a seven to three could be very viable in Washington State. It just kind of depends on what we're going for. Yep. All right. So I think that brings us to Wisconsin. All right. So let me load up the Wisconsin Congressional District's link so I can share my screen. Yeah, Wisconsin is going to be a very challenging state for Democrats because uh, it's very, very difficult to draw them any more than two congressional districts in a fair map. Very, That's very difficult. Very weird thing about Wisconsin. Wisconsin is arguably traditionally a Democratic state at the federal level, yet it's incredibly difficult to draw those Democrats into a map that essentially yields a democratic majority without it being a gerrymander. It's just such yeah, a difficult state to draw. Because again, most Democrats in, in Wisconsin, and I'm not making this up, are based in Madison or in Milwaukee. You can't really split either of those cities and call it a fair map. And you can't bleed them out into Republican areas and call it a fair map. So it's going to be really challenging because the governor of the state is a Democrat and is going to want a more democratic friendly map. At the same time, it's kind of impossible to do that without violating a lot of redistricting principles. And Republicans control the legislature, so we really it's don't know what's going to happen. The Democrats are geographically, or are essentially geographically salient in such a way that it makes it very difficult to draw a map. Uh, mm -hmm. This is the current map, and if you want to look at this, only three of these seats are held by Democrats. One of them is a Trump seat. So really, only two of these seats are Democratic seats on paper although the third is traditionally Democratic. So if we look at them, the first district is home to Brian uh, Style, and Brian Style was, um, he, he uh, took over for Paul Ryan, who notably retired in 2018, ending his speakership just in time for the GOP to lose the House. Uh, Style actually looks a lot like Paul Ryan. It's kind of scary to some extent. <laughs> 
he he does kind of look like a clone, but he fits in quite well. In fact, many voters, if they saw him, probably would just think that Paul Ryan's continuing to represent them. Yep, and he's notorious for defeating the Democratic Twitter favorite uh, Iron Stash, who ran one of the worst House campaigns in recent memory and managed to lose this competitive seat by 10 points in 2018. And then again, you could say competitive, it still leans Republican. It takes in the southern part of uh, Waukesha County, largely based around Racine and Kenosha County. Also mm-hmm. takes in some of the, all of Walworth County, actually, is the only county that's not split in there. Mark Pocan is definitely the more most progressive member of the delegation. Uh, and he represents, if you want to take a look at the district for yourself, Madison. Uh, and, you know, I think that's where... Isn't that where University of Wisconsin is? It, so. Yeah, it's the state yeah. capital as well. It's yeah. very, mm-hmm. very democratic. I mean, it's it's absurdly democratic. Yeah, it is very democratic. Even the surrounding counties outside of the Madison area are also democratic. That's really all you need to know. Ron Kind is a Democrat who's been in office for a long time. Uh, this is a seat that is, it was a narrow Trump seat in 2016 and again a Trump seat in 2020. Uh, Ron Kind a lot like Sherry Bustos in Illinois 17th had the closest race of his career against Derek Van Orden. Uh, Van Orden was criticized uh, during the campaign, but ultimately he managed to run a fairly close race. It was definitely the strongest challenge Kine has ever had. And if redistricting doesn't bode well for Kine, which is quite possible, uh, I would have said in the past he might jump into the race for Senate, but with Mandela Barnes in that race, I don't think he's going to be jumping in against Ron Johnson. Uh, so he's either going to lose re-election in 2022 or retire. Yeah, um, and it's worth noting this was drawn as a Democratic vote sink. It was, uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, it's I wouldn't compare it to the Colin Peterson seat because that's just so much more Republican, uh, and Ron Kind doesn't necessarily have the history of ticket splitting. Uh, he does, but not to the same extent as Colin Peterson did. And the seat, you have to keep in mind, it's it's not like Colin Peterson's seat, which is a Republican plus 31. Uh, this is only a Republican plus uh, four, I believe, uh, in 2016. I forgot the 2020 numbers, but Trump did. Yeah, win it was, it was Trump plus four. It was about Trump plus four. It was, it was around Trump plus four. Uh, but nonetheless, this seat will be will be tough. If this seat itself were just up in its current form in 2022, Kine would have a very tough race and would probably lose if it's a good good environment for the Republicans. Glenn Moore represents the fourth district, which takes in Milwaukee. It's a plurality white seat, so it's majority non-white, but it's not uh, majority black by any means. Um, Scott Fitzgerald replaced. He's like the definition of backbencher. Republican at this point, but he replaced Jim Sensenbrenner, who had been in office for a very long time, well over 40 years in this fifth district seat, safe Republican. Mr. Republican in Wisconsin. Glenn Grothman is another backbencher, represents the sixth district. Tom Tiffany represents the seventh district. He won a special election earlier on to replace Sean Duffy, uh, who has nine kids. And his most recent child was unfortunately born with a heart condition. So he felt he wanted to resign to spend more time with his family. So he did that. And Mike, Gallagher, know, yeah. Mike I Gallagher, mention, oh, sorry. Mike I want to Gallagher. mention one thing that I found interesting. You may be familiar with about Sean Duffy. He's, he was actually a former reality TV star. Uh, his, he was on the real world uh, TV show back in the nineties. His wife, as well as he met up Rachel Campos Duffy was also on the real world. Um, so they both started as uh, MTV stars. And, you know, he later went to Congress and his, his wife is now a very successful 
television commentator and they have nine kids. So you can see they're doing pretty well for themselves. Yep. And the eighth district is home to Mike Gallagher, a rising star within the Wisconsin Republican party for sure. If potentially he'll stay in the house and keep building his name wreck, but if he doesn't run for governor, he could always run for um, the Senate in the future when Ron Johnson presumably retires from his seat in 2028. But either way, he would be a formidable statewide candidate from Green Bay and uh, certainly expect to see this face in statewide politics in Wisconsin sometime in the future. Out of all of the, uh, I guess you could say, backbencher Republicans, he's the most promising for a career outside of the House. So that's the yeah. map. Yeah. And again, just a little bit more about what we're talking about here is that the seventh in particular, the seventh and the third are where Democrats have just cratered. The, thir- the, the seventh went from a district that Romney won by three points to one that Trump won by an overwhelming margin of 20 percentage points and then 20, uh, 21 and then 20 percentage points. So absurdly Republican district at this point. Same with the eighth. The eighth, actually, the previous iteration uh, was won by Barack Obama. It has Green Bay in it, but now it's another Romney plus three seat. This actually wasn't an extreme Republican gerrymander when it was drawn, but over time it's become a Republican plus 16 seat. So very, very Republican. Um, and so I'll go ahead and show our a fair map, which is basically, I have two maps actually, or no, I have one map, which is basically, and I can go into a little bit of, as to why it is what it is. Trust me when I say, you can't draw in good faith a four to four map in Wisconsin that is not a blatant gerrymander in terms of appearance. It's not possible. You can't do it. There's no way. It's it's just not not a reasonable possibility. And the reason why is the Democratic votes are concentrated in Milwaukee and Madison. You could not split those cities or at least not split them up enough. Uh, in particular, Milwaukee has specific VRA concerns. Splitting up the Hispanic community from the black community could result in retrogression. And it could result in this becoming effectively majority white, which would be not great for the black community in there, which relies on a coalition with Hispanic voters. And that's not to say coalition seats are a thing. But if the seat is drawn in such a way as to split the Hispanics off so they lose representation and split the blacks off so they lose representation and you get two seats with a white Democrat, that is a textbook violation of the VRA if, if I've ever seen one. And it's very, very challenging not to avoid that. So – our map we developed is an attempt to mitigate these concerns as much as possible while still drawing a compact map. This is just a this is just a modification of our redistricting radar map. We think it's reasonable. We you may not like it, but it's pretty reasonable in terms of how it votes and what it looks like. So here's how here's how the map starts. The first district has all of Janesville in it now, Rock County, all of Ursine, all of Kenosha, and then all of uh, Walworth and Jefferson counties, as well as part as well as Watertown uh, across the border in another county right there. This is a seat that Trump wins by about five points in both 2016 and 2020. It votes Republican in both the Senate and the governor races. You'll notice a pattern here. This is a problem for Democrats is a lot of these seats don't vote for Democrats, even when Democrats win. Uh, it's competitive though, which is enough, I think, to make it a reasonable seat. It is worth noting that uh, that in 2018, Tammy Duckworth or Tammy uh, Tammy Baldwin does win. Uh, there's too many Tammies in the Senate. But Tammy Baldwin does win the seat, so there is at least that. The second district is Madison-based, very similar to the current one, very Democratic overall. You'll notice how in 2016, it's a seat that Democrats get 65% of the vote in. 2020, this goes up to 70%. That's a big reason why they why they won Wisconsin. 
The third district is uh, unfortunately not really competitive for Democrats at this point. Uh, it's a Trump plus seven seat in both 2016 and 2020. Uh, Tammy Baldwin does win the district, although uh, Tony Evers does not win the district. So it would be very unlikely Repub Democrats hold this district. The fourth here is most of Milwaukee, along with these two southern cities, along with these other areas. It is majority uh, white by CVAP, but it is enough that, that whites would not make up a majority of the electorate on the Democratic side. And it does keep these cities intact. Uh, there is a little bit of Milwaukee right here. You'll notice this uh, East Village area up on further that does go into the new 5th district, but it's a reasonable split, I think. Uh, it was either that or one of these smaller cities. We chose to split the bigger city, Milwaukee, rather than splitting a smaller city. Um, this fifth district is a pure suburban seat, has all of crucial Waukesha County in it, goes to Germantown, has a couple of these cities up north, has these northern suburban cities in Wisconsin, as well as a, or Milwaukee, as well as a little bit of Milwaukee itself, and then a few of these other cities. The result is a, is a seat that goes from Trump plus 10 to Trump plus three and a half. And it does vote, although it does vote very Republican down ballot. Uh, uh, Leah Vukmir does win the seat in 2018, and Scott Walker wins the seat by 16 points. So it's still very Republican overall uh, down ballot. We would expect a Republican to hold it, although it would be a very competitive seat overall. Uh, the new 6th district stretches from Sheboygan and uh, Manitowoc all the way into Wisconsin, uh, into the core of Wisconsin, Stephen Points, Wisconsin Rapids. This is a Trump plus 23 seat. This is a kind of a leftover seat in the center of the state. Uh, uh, it's a very, very Republican seat, to put it lightly. This new 7th district stretches from the Iron Range all the way down, has Wasaw. As a few other areas, this is, again, still very Republican. It actually trends right from 2016 to 2020. It goes from about Trump plus 20, Trump plus 22.4 uh, to Trump plus 22.5 or 6 or 7. Uh, and even uh, Tammy Baldwin does not win it, and uh, Tony Evers doesn't really claw back either. And then the seat, this is another seat I really like. This is a Green Bay, stretches along Green Bay into Appleton and Oshkosh. So it's basically three uh, competitive cities uh, that are quite reasonable. Uh, it's drawn very reasonably. Um, this is a competitive seat on paper, although, again, Mike Gallagher is very strong. Uh, Tammy Baldwin does win the seat, and Tony Evers does not win the seat, although he does do all right. Um now, again, the reason why we drew it like this is it's just, it's just not great for Democrats. I mean, if you look at the way things are done here, um, we're already putting in a lot of Republican areas into the second district. We're putting in these Republican portions of Sauk, Columbia, Lafayette, Green counties. Uh, Green is still a Democratic county. But there comes a line when, you know, when a state's – you can't fix a state's geography. We did this with Republican states as well. We didn't try to draw a Republican seat in Massachusetts, even though you theoretically can. We didn't try to ensure perfect partisan parity in Washington, even though in theory six to four is much more fair in a state that goes 60-40 most of the time. Seven to three is kind of a little bit off. But sometimes the geography can't be helped. So the result of this map is it's a six to two. But Democrats have two seats they could compete in. Uh, and they Republicans only have two very strong seats here. They have seven and they have six. Democrats can compete in five. They can compete in one. They can compete in three and eight. If they can't win any of them, fine. But I think this is more than fair in terms of giving them an, any sort of chance in the seat. I mean, it, it, Harrison could comment on this as well, but there comes a point where you just cannot make decisions and violate redistricting principles. It, it's just not a, a, fa a fair thing to do. 
I mean, you can you can see here, putting the Senate race on, uh, Democrats win all but three seats, five, seven, and eight. That's pretty reasonable given how the state voted. Gubernatorial race in, in 2018, they win two seats, but these two are very competitive. Uh, this you know the presidential race in the attorney general race is similarly competitive, but the presidential race it's they've got a competitive seat around Milwaukee, which is going to certainly trend Democratic. There's not much you can do beyond that, I don't think. I don't know if Harrison has any additional thoughts, but that's just kind of where we're at. Not particularly. I mean, most people would know that Wisconsin is a difficult state geographically. It's kind of, in a way, similar to Arkansas. It's very difficult in Arkansas to draw a Democratic seat if you wanted to draw a Democratic seat. It's possible, but it's not easy to do, per se. So kind of like the uh, African-American population in Arkansas is heavily scattered reminds me a lot of how the democratic population in Wisconsin is ge makes it geographically difficult to draw a completely fair map. Did you have the gerrymander on there to show? Uh, we have it. Yeah. I'll, I'll pull up our gerrymander and redistricting radar to, uh, as an alternative of what an actual Republican gerrymander would look like. And what it would look like is pretty terrible for Democrats. It would be, it would not be six. To, it would be six to two, but it'd be very safe six to two. Oh, I meant the democratic um, gerrymander. Oh, democratic gerrymander. Sorry. Yeah. Like, you can do this. It's horrible. I mean, That's created by our master Adam Trencher. Yeah, I think like Dave Wasserman did a. I think Dave Wasserman did a challenge where, um, Dave Wasserman did a challenge where, uh, he asked people basically to draw enough Democratic seats by a certain margin because it's literally impossible to make a Democratic map in in Wisconsin. This is competitive as a Republican one. It's worth noting also. This is probably illegal because it makes the fourth. Uh, much you more, actually you know, open that up in Dave's? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Let's I'm do that. Curious to take a look at some of the seats. Yeah, and see if any of them dummy matter. Yeah. Yeah. Let's convert this to twenty twenty lines. Actually, no. Let's not convert it to twenty twenty lines. Let's just put it on twenty. Actually, yeah, we're going to convert it to twenty twenty lines. The data is probably going to be slightly off in terms of population disparity. It really doesn't matter too much. Um, we didn't turn off water precincts. There's going to be a little bit of disparity, but it's nothing that can't be fixed. Really, this is just to show how it looks in 2020 and, and how it would look in other elections. Oh, come on. Oh dear! Actually, I gotta fix. I gotta fix the population because it seems to be confusing water precincts. Yeah, we can't. We can't really show it, but really, it is not. A, I mean, that's what you can do. It's not ideal, I don't think. Um, I do want to answer one question here from Jacob Smith, who said, "Hot take: There is no one way to draw a fair map. You can draw them in many different ways." Yes, that is the case, and that is the philosophy we use. But there are baseline standards we're not going to violate. We're not going to split up the city of Milwaukee. It's not reasonable. We're not going to split up. Uh, we're not going, I mean, a seat that has all of Waukesha County, but we're not just going to string together a bunch of cities that are democratic and then, you know, and, and then, and then call it a fair map when it really doesn't represent a community of interest. That's a factor we rate pretty highly in our maps. And we haven't gone out of the way to make it. Uh, we certainly haven't gone out of the way to draw Republican seats in, you know, states like California when we easily could have. And real quick, I know we talked about this. Harrison and I talked beforehand West Virginia, uh, 
I will show our map really quickly because West Virginia is not really interesting because we know exactly what is going to happen in West Virginia. There are three congressional districts. First is represented by David McKinley. The second by Alex Mooney. The third by Carol Miller. Uh, Alex Mooney's seat is in the middle of the state and it's going to be Alex sandwiched. By the first coast. It's going to yeah. be divided north to south. You don't even need to see the map. Yeah. And literally the problem with Alex Mooney is he is absurdly unpopular. He is just, he is, he, he actually did worse. He did worse than uh, the Richard Ojeda did. In this is a good answer. In in 2014, Nick Rayall was the incumbent Democrat in the third district, and he lost by ten points. But Alex Mooney only won his seat by three points in 2014. Yeah, he's a carpetbagger. Nobody likes him. Um, and so what will happen is that Kara Miller will get a safe seat, McKinley will get a safe seat, and Alex Mooney can move back to Maryland. Yeah, he, uh, that's he what it looks like. If you're interested. Uh, if they draw David Trone out and make that seat in Maryland, the Republican yeah. seat, and then screw over Andrew, Andy Harris, then Alex yeah. Moon can run over to Maryland and win that seat. Yeah. Again, I, we, we, we would draw, we would show you a map, but there's literally nothing interesting about West Virginia. You can draw a state Senate map, which is perfectly fair and has exactly zero Democrats in it. The state is very red. It is going to get redder. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of areas Democrats can hope for. The seats won't be competitive. And Carol Miller and Dave McKinley will be, very, very fine in both of their districts. I would be surprised if Mooney just does not straight up retire rather than face the indignity of losing a primary by 20 or 30 points, as would likely be the case. Or more. Because he's not popular anywhere. He's, he's literally not popular in any portion of the district. He's winning because it's a Republican district. But, and they still ridiculously underperformed in 2016 and 2018. Yeah. Again, like literally, Democrats spent money. They spent money in the third district to try to make Richard Ojeda a thing. Uh he he lost by thirteen. He lost by twelve and a half. Alex Mooney only won by eleven and a half, and they spent nothing there. Well, it's it's embarrassing. I mean, I'm not trying yeah. to be rude about it, but if you think about it, 2014 is the worst example. He that was the closest. He only beat <laughs> Nick Casey. He beat Nick Casey in that seat by just a couple points. Want to know in the a only, red wave? Want to know the only reason that he won? The counties bordering Maryland, Jefferson and Berkeley County, and the whole eastern portion of the district. The rest of the district voted Democratic. The portion that's essentially fake Maryland is, you know, it, it gave Mooney what he needed to win in that race. And that was a race that shouldn't have even been competitive. And because keep in mind, in 2012, the prior year, same district, Shelley Moore Capital won the seat with 70% of the vote. And in 2016, he had a close race again. He ran against a state representative named Mark Hunt. He couldn't crack 60% of the vote. And 2018 was the most embarrassing one of all. And granted, it was a Democratic wave year, but he was still underperforming in rural counties outside of Conowa County. And he essentially, like Eric said, only lost or only won by 11 points. Mm -hmm. even, even in the last election, even in the last election, he he still ran behind Trump by a fairly decent margin. Yeah, if the Democrats had just put more money in 2018 into that race, it definitely would have been a better target than West Virginia three. Same thing in 2014. Uh, that race was closer than West Virginia three, even though he was in, uh, even though Nick Rayall was an incumbent. But yeah, I think that really wraps up most of our discussion. And this is pretty much the end of redistricting radar, but you're going to be able to start watching our new show, the campaign trail, which I'm bringing back with Eric next week. And we're going to start with the uh, 1824 election. We're going to hit all the big campaigns in that series for you. You can go watch our uh, 1980 episode. I'll link that for you. 
you can go watch that um, now. Let me just link it real quick. <laughs> that did very well. Uh, it was about the 2000 contest, my bad. But we did that, and we're going to bring back the series. So that is the playlist to watch. Thank and you. also, if, if you've not already watched our – we'll post another one here, which is our Almanac special we did with uh, with several amazing uh, writers, uh, Jessica Taylor from Cook Political Report uh, and Lou Jacobson from PolitiFact, both of whom have contributed to the Almanac. We discuss everything relating to the Almanac and the 2021 and 2022 elections. So go watch that as well. Uh, and Radar is done for now, but it's not, it's going to come back once we get the actual state maps coming forward. We do have a plan for a second season. We know you guys love this show and we're going to ensure we, we do guarantee it will be coming back when there is more states and there's more things to go over. Yep. We're going to be discussing each state as it releases its map next year. Yep. We'll also and probably dabble into state legislative maps to a degree, uh, mm -hmm. wherever possible. Um, but yeah, that's just, uh, that's where we're at. And thank you guys again for subscribe or for mm -hmm. watching the channel, like the video. If you like what we're doing, subscribe to it. If you like what we're doing, we're also on and podcast platforms. The playlist. the playlist has all of our episodes, but yeah, uh, it's complete. You can, of, yeah. For the rest of this year, we're done with this. So thank you. Yeah. Yep, it's complete. The playlist is complete. You can watch it from start to finish. It's probably going to take you a day or so to get through all of them. It's be a long but, time. Yeah, but it is there. If you ever feel like you missed the show, you can go back and watch it. We will be back. Trust us. Subscribe to the channel so you don't miss out. We do have a Patreon as well. We have other ways you can support us if you like. But we and do appreciate your support. Thank you for watching. It's been a year in the making, too, because our first yeah. episode was last July. So Yeah, that's impressive. We got through it in a year. That's actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good night, everyone. Yeah.